How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers. Because history matters. I'm going to be in conversation today with David Quammen. David is the author of a new book called Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus, which is about the COVID-19 virus. The author of 16 previous books. He's won many awards for his writings and also a New York Times bestselling author. And his last book that I talked to him about was a book called Spillover, which had an incredibly prescient view. This is before COVID-19. Maybe we should worry more about these diseases that jump from the animal species to the human species because we might be having more of them, possibly leading to pandemics. A very prescient view, unfortunately. And David, thank you very much for being with us. David, it's nice to be with you again. Nice to talk with you again. Well, thank you very much for being here. Um, This book is an incredibly interesting book about the scientific part of the COVID-19 challenge. You avoided, because that's not your area of focus, the political battles and all the other kinds of uh, internecine things that we people in Washington, D.C. tend to focus on. You worried about the science. And so why don't we get right to the most important scientific question that some people ask. Was COVID-19 a natural uh, disease that came from some animal somewhere, or did it come out of a lab in Wuhan, as many people have thought was the case? You examine this very carefully. What is your conclusion? I do. And I talked to the scientists who I trust most on this, who are molecular evolutionary virologists, specialists in this field. And they overwhelmingly embrace the idea of natural origins, that this is a virus that came from a non-human animal, probably uh, ultimately a bat, possibly after having recombined with another coronavirus, coronaviruses can swap sections. It's called recombining. And it's possible that this this virus acquired some sections from a coronavirus from another sort of animal, perhaps a pangolin or a raccoon dog, and got into humans. Now, these scientists are aware that science is always provisional, that it's hard to prove a negative, and that there is some statistical possibility that um, this might be a virus, a natural virus that leaked from a lab, but the possibility to them seems very, very, very low. And the evidence that exists, the positive evidence, supports the idea of a natural spillover. But of course, more research needs to be done, um, both on the natural origins school of thought and the what I call the nefarious origin school of thought, which includes the possibility of a lab leak. More work needs to be done. The the question has to be answered with greater confidence, but there is at this point high, high, high confidence that this was almost certainly a natural spillover of an animal virus. Okay. Now you point out in the book that if it had come from a lab, there were two possibilities. Possibility one is it just escaped from an experiment that they were doing on animals. 
Another is that they scientifically engineered something that was different than something that would have come naturally out of animals. Your view is that with respect to both of those possibilities, it's not as likely as some people in the press have said it was. That's right. There was a certain point in the spring, if I recall, the spring of 2021, when there were a number of popular magazine articles and uh, online articles proposing this lab leak hypothesis or the nefarious origins um, hypothesis in one form or another. And people started to say, well, the lab leak idea has gotten more plausible. And what it seemed to me and what I've said is that, no, it never got more plausible. It simply got more popular. It had great attractions for certain readers and certain newspaper and magazine editors, evidently. And it was based on suppositions. It was based on allegations. It was based on this could have happened, that could have happened, but not on active positive evidence. In terms of the idea of an engineered virus, again, the molecular evolutionary virologists that I trust most, and there's quite a number of them, and I've, I've gotten to know them, they say, no, this is not a virus that looks in any way engineered. It's implausible to think of this as a product of conscious engineering. For instance, it differs from one of the closest related viruses, a bat coronavirus that for a while was the closest to this in terms of a similarity of genomes, 96.2% similar. But this virus differs from that virus by something like 1,100 mutations throughout its 30,000 uh, letter genome. And that just is, is not rationally interpretable as an act of engineering. Okay. So I should step back for a moment, David. In your previous books, you're legendary for tromping around the world, going to all kinds of places to go into bat caves, which you did on your book on spillover. Um, in this book, because of COVID, you couldn't travel that much. Did you do most of this over the phone or, or over Zoom? I did it over Zoom, almost all of it. Yes, you're right, David. I couldn't travel. Uh, hardly anyone could travel during 2021. I certainly couldn't get on a plane for Wuhan, China and walk into laboratories there. I couldn't go to China and crawl through caves with scientists. I couldn't even go to the Congo and walk through forests with scientists as I did for Spillover. Simon & Schuster had asked me to do a book on the pandemic, and I pondered for a long time during 2020, how in the world can I do this book? And then I hit on the idea that I would contact, first I thought 60 or 70 of the world's leading scientists. It ended up being 95. I would ask them to sit for extended Zoom interviews of about an hour and a half each. I would ask them about their views of the virus, their work on this virus, but also about their lives as scientists, as teachers, as parents, as lab leaders during the pandemic. So I did that. 95 people ranging from Tony Fauci and Barney Graham at the Vaccine Research Center to George Gao, the director general of the China CDC, distinguished scientists in Brazil, elsewhere around the world, to unknown but brilliant graduate students in Edinburgh and elsewhere doing important work on this. And I thought of them as my Greek chorus. So I assembled the story from their voices. I assembled a narrative from the scientific literature, from my, my other research, and from what they told me during those interviews. Is it clear that the virus did come from Wuhan area uh, scientifically, whether it came from a lab or animals? Is there any doubt that scientifically that was the genesis of the uh, coronavirus 19? All of the evidence that we have says, yes, it came not only from the city of Wuhan, but it emerged into humans in or near that famous wet market, the Huanan Seafood Wholesale Market. 
there has been excellent work done by a team of scientists led by a scientist I've known for 15 years named Michael Warabee, Canadian at the University of Arizona, uh, who has investigated all of the data surrounding the earliest 41 cases in particular known in the city of Wuhan. And they all either occurred in or clustered around that market in a very, very non-random way. Even having, after he had allowed for population density and other factors, there was a non-random statistically significant pattern that these these cases were occurring in or around that market. Okay. So let me ask you, uh, can you explain in scientific simple terms what the coronavirus does or COVID-19 does to the lungs that so damaged people's lungs that many of them tragically couldn't survive? What is so unique about this particular type of virus that made it so uh, dangerous? Well, first of all, the virus itself, the name of it is SARS-CoV-2. COVID-19 is the disease. SARS-CoV-2, SARS-Coronavirus-2 is the official name of the virus. And it's number two because the SARS virus of 2003 was SARS-Coronavirus number one. So it is a virus that is capable of attaching to mammal cells using a particular kind of receptor on the outside of some mammal cells for reasons that we needn't go into. Those are called ACE2 receptors, ACE2 receptors. And the virus, of course, is not a cell itself. It's a cellular parasite. It can only replicate itself like all other viruses by attaching to and inserting its genome into the cell of, for any virus, an animal, a plant, a fungus, or a bacterium. Those are all cellular creatures. So it attaches to the outside of a cell inserts its genome into the cell and then replicates itself using the cell's machinery. And then those replicons come busting out of the cell and destroy the cell. The ACE2 receptors are very abundant in cells of the human airway, particularly the upper airway, but also in the lungs. Now, the ACE2 receptor is not the only way, apparently, that this virus can get into cells. And the, the cells of the human airway are not the only human cells it can infect. It also causes systemic damage throughout the human body, but that's why it is such an aggressive and debilitating respiratory virus. And I'm feeling that myself because I've got my own case of COVID-19 right now. Fortunately, I have a very mild case. It feels just like essentially a sinus infection. I've had it for about three weeks now. And so although I'm doing Zoom interviews, I'm not doing any in-person book tour events. And it's because this, um, this virus is has grabbed onto my ACE2 receptors and caused me to sneeze and have a sore throat and have, again, what now feels like a sinus infection. Well, despite all that, you, look, you sound great. You look great, but okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so let me ask you, uh, why is it that this virus affects older people more than younger people? In other words, is there, that their lungs are weaker and they just can't survive the, the attack on their lungs or their air passageways? Why is it that the people tend to die tend to be older than the people um, who um, survived, and why is it that now you have people like you with these symptoms that are tolerable, but in the early days of, of COVID-19, it seemed as if people were dying left and right, and now people seem to say, well, I've got a you know chest infection, but it, I can tolerate it. Right, right. Well, in terms of the age of people, 
in to some degree, it's probably the fact that their constitutions are a little bit weaker. Um, but the most crucial thing is probably that you know, those of us of your age and my age, David, um, you know, our immune systems are not as uh, robust and, and not as quick in their responses as the immune systems of younger people. Just just as, you know, we couldn't come off a starting line and run a hundred yard dash as, as fast as we could, even you and I, when we were 20. So our immune systems cannot come off the starting line and and perform as quickly and robustly as they could in the past. In terms of the the difference in the case fatality rate and the severity rate among people now versus the beginning of the pandemic, certainly one of the important factors is that we have these wonderful vaccines that were created so quickly and effectively. For instance, I had five shots of vaccine before I got my case of COVID. I had the Pfizer and then I had two, two shots of Pfizer, two boosters. And then on, in early September, I got the, the bivalent booster to protect me against Omicron. And so probably because of that, I am having a mild though lingering case. If I hadn't had those vaccines, I might not be able to talk to you right now. And likewise with other people, there are still people, as you well know, dying around the world, dying in this country, hundreds per day, the last I heard, but not as many dying and not as many needing uh, intensive care units and intensive treatment in hospitals as in the past. And uh, we'd owe a lot of that to the, I would say, to the vaccines and also to some of the antiviral drug treatments that are available now. Well, let's talk about the antiviral drugs and the vaccines. Before the vaccines were developed, there were efforts to get certain kinds of drugs into people's systems who had this. Some of them worked, some of them didn't work. Is there any one drug that one can take after you've received this that will modulate the impact of the disease on you? There have been several uh, that have been tested, developed, or adopted for this generalized antiviral drugs that were used against this virus early on. They were generally not found to be very effective. I talk about some of them in the book, and I and I talk about some other treatments, sort of half reputable treatments uh, or disreputable treatments, not recommended. Hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, which is an anti-worm um, drug that is used to control worms in people around the world, and it's a very important drug because a lot of people are infected with with worms, but it's not meant to be used against viruses. But now we have Paxlovid. I think people have heard of Paxlovid, which is an antiviral combination of drugs put together specifically for this virus. And it is available to people who have secondary risk conditions, for instance, being over the age of 70. So when I started to feel infected, I got a prescription and was allowed to take Paxlovid. I took it for five days. I tested negative then for four days. And then I started testing positive again, and I've tested positive again for almost two weeks. So people have heard of uh, Paxlovid rebound. Joe Biden had Paxlovid rebound. Tony Fauci had Paxlovid rebound. And now I'm a bit of a poster boy for Paxlovid rebound myself. That what you mean is you you take the drug, maybe it modulates it for a while, but then it comes back again? Yes. yes. What about when President Trump got uh, COVID-19, he got a drug that was not yet available to everybody. I think it was called remdesivir. Remdesivir? Yes. And you mentioned yeah. that in your book. 
Is yeah. that a, a good antiviral treatment as well for this? Well, that was one that was being used early on. Again, it was adapted from use against other viruses. Um, and uh, medical people thought, well, this is worth a try. So I think Donald Trump was treated with remdesivir. If I recall correctly, he was also treated with monoclonal antibodies. He had Cadillac healthcare. He had presidential scale healthcare for his infection and it got him through not by force of will, but by force of the privilege, which is sensible with the president of of having the best available treatment. Nowadays, I don't think they are using remdesivir anymore, although I'm not a medical person, so I, I don't speak of that um, with any authority. Paxlovid, I think, is the main recommended antiviral being used now for people who have any sort of a secondary condition. Okay, let's talk about the race to get a vaccine, which was obviously the the effort underway from the beginning, practically, because vaccines are usually cures for many of these problems once you uh, get a vaccine that that works. Normally, it takes about seven years or so to produce a vaccine, I think. Uh, I think the polio vaccine took about seven years or so. The fastest before, I think, was four years, where I think uh, for Ebola, it was about roughly four years to get a vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, so how did we get a vaccine in less than a year uh, what was so different and so unique? Was it more people were working on it or some new techniques? Well, you're right. You're right about the, how long it has taken to develop vaccines in the past. In some cases, you know, you go decades without a vaccine. I mean, we're still looking for an effective uh, HIV vaccine. But in this case, it happened very quickly. And there were a couple of reasons for that, which I described in the book. I narrate the story of the development, in particular, of the Moderna vaccine and and in general of the mRNA vaccines, the messenger RNA vaccines. The reason these were able to be developed so quickly for SARS-CoV-2 is that there was a prequel. There were scientists who were already working on the concept of using messenger RNA as a stimulant for the immune system in a vaccine. There's this wonderful scientist named Barney Graham. He's one of my characters. He was one of my important sources. A lead scientist, he's retired now, but at the Vaccine Research Center, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. It's actually under Tony Fauci's Institute for Allergies and Infectious Diseases within the NIH. Barney Graham had been working for years on a vaccine for another kind of virus um, that debilitates and kills children around the world, in particular respiratory syncytial virus. And he had spent almost 20 years working on a vaccine for that. In the course of that, he came upon the idea of using messenger RNA as the vaccine stimulant. And he, with a number of young colleagues, was working on that and decided to try to develop that for the MERS virus, which is also a coronavirus, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus. This is the one that emerged in 2012 from camels on the Arabian Peninsula and had a very high case fatality rate, but is not nearly as transmissible as this virus. So they were working on that, the idea of using messenger RNA for a MERS virus. And then along came COVID-19. And in the very early days of 2020, Barney Graham and Tony Fauci were talking to each other, and Barney Graham was saying to Dr. Fauci, well, just get me the, the genome of this virus. If we can get the genome so that I can see the genome, I can start working on a messenger RNA virus for vaccine for this virus. And when I spoke with Tony Fauci, I asked him, what's the most important decision that you made in 2020? He said, well, there was a political decision and a scientific decision. The political decision was to speak up against the president, which I don't take any pleasure in doing. The scientific decision was 
when we got hold of the genome on January 10th, 2020, we got it to Barney Graham. And I said to him, just go take the genome, work on the vaccine. I will get you the support. I will get you the money. Just go, go, go right now. And Barney Graham and his people did. And within something like 60 days, they had a prototype vaccine that could be injected on a clinical trials basis into human arms. So historically, uh, vaccines came about from, let's say, an inert or maybe a dead virus of the, the of the disease you were trying to deal with. In other mm-hmm. words, polio vaccine, you were taking some, I'd uh, say, weaker polio uh, disease and injecting it into these people on the theory that it would give them uh, immunity, but it wouldn't be so strong that it would give them polio. Right. And to do that, it takes a lot of time to produce them. You needed to have a whole variety of uh, eggs and other kinds of things. Here, you're doing it all synthetically. Is that the novelty? If this is synthetic and as opposed to requiring you to have eggs or other kinds of things from which you can get dead vaccines? Well, that's, that's one of the novelties. But there are other vaccines that don't use the mRNA technology that also were developed quickly and use synthetic methods. For instance, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine developed by a team led by a scientist named Sarah Gilbert at Oxford University. That's not an mRNA vaccine, but it also uses um, synthetic proteins to stimulate the immune system. In the case of the mRNA vaccines, that means the, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, what's done is mRNA is um, an instruction, a, a, a nucleic acid that is an instruction to cells to build proteins of certain sorts. And so Barney Graham and his team developed a way of synthesizing an instruction to build not the entire virus, but a part of the virus that immune systems would recognize. It's a little bit like saying, well, we, we don't have the photograph of the complete suspect we're seeking, but we have his hat or we have his orange jacket. And so we will look for the hat or the orange jacket. So you inject this messenger RNA, the cells create many, many, many copies of this suspicious hat and they, uh, they exude them into the bloodstream and the immune system reacts to them and says, okay, anytime we see that hat, we will attack. And that's how you develop antibodies for a virus that has never actually been in the body in its entirety. Now, much of your writing has been, or a lot of it has been about uh, science and science related kinds of subjects. Um, what do you think uh, the scientific community's uh, reputation is after COVID-19 has largely passed us? Is it that the scientists did a wonderful job getting a vaccine or that in the handling of things at the CDC and the NIH and other things, they became politicized and were not as effective as they should have been? Well, alas, I think the answer is that um, opinion about science is very, very polarized in this country and in general around the world. There are people who realize how helpful science has been, how wonderfully these scientists have performed in developing these vaccines. And there are other people who take their information and their beliefs from other sources who have decided to doubt science, to reject science, ranging from evolution to vaccine science, uh, and to demonize the scientists such as Tony Fauci, who have done such a wonderful job in response to this. That's not to say that all of the response from science and from the public health community, which is a little bit different from science, that's not to say that all responses have been perfect. 
They haven't been. The CDC, you mentioned, they did not perform very well in the early days of the pandemic. They put out diagnostic test kits that didn't work, and that slowed things down. And there were other stumblings by the CDC and by other aspects of American public health, because American public health is is not integrated. For instance, the way public health in the United Kingdom is integrated into one system. Ours is very fragmented. In a lot of cases, the, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing, and we suffered for that. So there have been imperfections. But I hope that many people recognize just what a great, great blessing scientific vaccine development, scientific response, scientific molecular evolutionary virology have been to our well, as I say in the subtitle of my book, The Scientific Race to Defeat This Deadly Virus. Now, the Chinese have developed their own uh, vaccine, and I think Russia has its own vaccine. Um, is there evidence that these vaccines are as good as the ones that we have developed, or the evidence isn't clear? The evidence isn't clear, but the evidence that I've seen, which has been only fragmentary, suggests that those vaccines may not be as effective as the mRNA vaccines. And the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, I mention again, because it has gotten into many millions of arms around the world and seems to have protected possibly more people than any other vaccine. So uh, you mentioned in your book that we have these vaccines, but the large population of the world, a large percentage of the population of the world doesn't get the vaccines. So you have people in the emerging markets or the developed markets who are you know, probably more uh, challenged uh, in terms of uh, their health systems than we are, and they don't really get these vaccines. What do you think can be done about that? Well, that's right. First of all, you're absolutely right. We have two problems in terms of vaccine uptake. We have vaccine rejection by far too many people in high-income countries, and we have vaccine inequity, lack of vaccine availability in far too many low- and middle-income countries. In Africa, for instance, the, the vaccination rate for this virus is very, very, very low. And that there are a number of reasons for that, but probably the leading reason is that the vaccine just has not been available. There are several international organizations, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and an organization called CEPI, C-E-P-I, that are devoted to um, providing money, resources generally for um innovation of vaccines and for supplying of vaccines to low and middle income countries where people need them, where there's this vaccine inequity. And I mentioned that the continent of Africa, for instance, only a very, very small percentage of people have been vaccinated against this disease. And, and that's an injustice, but it's also um, a problem for all of us, because the more this virus circulates in any population of people around the world, the more the chances this virus has to evolve further and be a problem for all of us. In a developed country like the United States, roughly 98% of the people or so are probably vaccinated against polio. Why do you think it is that only about two-thirds of Americans seem to be vaccinated against the coronavirus? Why do you think all of a sudden a large percentage of the population seems to feel that being vaccinated against this particular virus is not a good thing? Well, I don't think it has much to do with this particular virus. I think it has to do with the timing, uh, the timing in the in the political cycle, the political life of our country. We've talked about how polarized we are now, how much distrust there is among certain segments of the public for science in general. That has been, I think, devastating in this case. It has been the leading factor that has caused 
some segments of people to to reject scientific advice, to demonize Tony Fauci, and to reject this vaccine. Of course, social media, internet, the the availability in incredible abundance, not just of information, but of misinformation has allowed people to pick and choose their facts based on their political dispositions and feel like they're informing themselves when actually they're consuming misinformation about all sorts of crazy theories. You know, Bill Gates is putting chips in the American public by way of this vaccine, this implausible, non-scientific, paranoid silliness that, alas, has victimized many of our good fellow citizens. So let's talk about, in the remaining time we have, are we likely to have another uh, pandemic of this type? Your earlier book called uh, Spillover suggests we're probably going to have a lot more of them because we come into contact with animals maybe more than we did many mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, is this something we have to worry about future pandemics? And have we learned anything from this pandemic that can help us in the future and is likely to help us in the future? You know, David, I'll take that last bit first because I've asked the same thing of many of my 95 sources. I've said at the end of the interview, do you think we will have learned enough from this horrible experience to do better next time? And I'm sorry to say that many of those scientific experts say, I would like to say yes to that question, but you're going to have to mark me a no. I don't think we have learned enough as societies to do much better in the future. I'm a little bit more optimistic than that. I hope that we have learned enough. I hope that we have learned, among other things, that there will be more pandemic threats coming. There will be more spillovers and outbreaks of very dangerous animal viruses that have gotten into humans, possibly more coronaviruses and very possibly influenza viruses, which can be very, very, very dangerous. So is there another pandemic coming? Well, I would say that we can count on the fact that there are more pandemic threats coming. But our science is so sophisticated now, and we have the experience of COVID-19, that it is possible that we can create better systems of surveillance, outbreak surveillance, and response to spillovers and, and outbreaks that occur in isolated areas so that we can contain those events before they become pandemics. We have to do much more in terms of strengthening our surveillance within countries and among countries, but it's doable. And so we should not despair of that. We should not be resigned to more pandemics. We should simply be ready for the fact that we will be challenged by other viruses, this dangerous or even more dangerous in the coming years. We've been in conversation with David Quammen on his new book, Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus, a book I thoroughly enjoyed and learned a lot about this subject matter from reading. David, thank you very much. And by the way, what's your next book going to be on? Do you know yet? I have a book that I'm just finishing now coming out from National Geographic Books in May. It's a book on conservation. It's a collection of 21 conservation feature stories I wrote for National Geographic magazine, knit together with a lot of new material, connective tissue, updates, a new forward, a new afterward, and it'll come out in May uh, under the title, The Heartbeat of the Wild. Okay, well, thank you. I look forward to that and I hope you get better and recover soon from your COVID-19 episode. Thank you very much, David. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support.
you can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.